Can your mindset make a difference in your life? It can make all the difference in your life. Join me for this episode of our show where you will discover that the battle is won or lost between your ears. We're getting to that on this episode of the Do This Sell More Show. Today we're talking about success mindset. And you'll notice the title there, the battle is won or lost between your ears. The longer I go in business, the more people that I work with, particularly professionals, successful professionals, the more I realize that your mindset really does determine how far and how fast you go uh, and you grow in your business. So today, that's the subject of our time together is success mindset. All right, so here's our agenda for today. First, to get you to think differently about the way you're thinking. Second, to change your actions. And third, to change your business. So your thinking influences the way you feel. The way you feel influences the way you act. The way you act influences your business. Our logistics remain as they always have been. Please use the chat feature to send me questions. Uh, the presentation will go for about a half hour. Questions, as long as you'd like afterwards, my email and my phone number are up there on the screen. Thank you all for joining me today. The video replay will be available as quickly as I possibly can turn it around. We've got a new system for editing, so I think I can probably get this to you tonight, knock on wood. Um, success mindset. There are 10 different mindsets that we're going to look at today. The first is accurate thinking. The second is the elimination of guilt. The third is removing negativity. The fourth is getting paid in advance and thinking that you're worth it to get paid in advance. The fifth is guarding your time. The sixth is following your passion. The seventh is ignoring critics. The eighth is taking on fear. The ninth is that systems fix a bad memory. And the tenth is asking. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, how did Dave come up with these 10 things? And I'll tell you that I spend a lot of time, and I have for, God, the past, I guess, 28, 29 years since I've been in the, in the, well, no more than that, 30 years since I've been in the world of business, I spent a lot of time watching and really studying successful people. And for the last 18 or 19 years, since I've been in professional services, my entire focus has been on helping people become more successful in one way or another. And if you said to me, Dave, pick 50 things that successful people do that make them successful, the mindset that these folks have is probably the biggest difference between people who are successful and unsuccessful. And these 10 things are the 10 things that I focus on most when I interact with my clients. Why? It's because these 10 things, if you took, if you did a, a, a real in-depth meta-analysis, I bet you you would find these 10 things are clearly what separates successful people from unsuccessful people. And over the years, I've seen these 10 things demonstrated in my clients and in other successful people with whom I've worked. And then many of these things, in fact, just about all of them in one way or another, have been validated in work that I've done in my own personal and professional development. So when someone mentions one of these things, I put two and two together in my mind and I say, yes, I've seen that 
with five or six or seven other people before. Where have I seen that? And this is what this person calls it versus what someone else calls it versus what I would call it. So I'm going to share these with you today. And you no doubt have seen some of these in other places. You've seen these exhibited maybe even in yourself in a, in a flash of brilliance when you're doing something really well. And I'm happy to have a discussion and a dialogue about these with you because the more we talk about these, the more you can adopt these uh, ways of thinking, but really make them work for you. And that's the second biggest point I want to make at the outset here today. I'm going to introduce these to you today, but it's really up to you to incorporate them into your day-to-day -day life. And there is no better time to incorporate these into your day-to-day -day life than now because everything that you used to do has been really uh, thrown into the wind and we're all doing stuff differently now. So since your entire world has been turned upside down, let's take some of this new stuff and incorporate it along with the new way that you've decided to move your business forward. Let's get into it. The first uh, type of mindset that I want you to hone in on is accurate thinking. And from talking to you all in a one-on-one -on -one setting, I know you've challenged yourself with this uh, in the past. Feelings are not facts, right? So sometimes we see something and it just aggravates us to no end. And that influences the decisions we make. Similarly, we may feel great about something else and that may not be the best thing in the world for us. We are human and we will always interchange the way we feel versus things that are actually real. So I want you to challenge yourself to look at things and think, all right, what's real here and what is just making me feel the way I feel? Uh, you'll notice a lot of times, and, and this is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw this out there because it's prevalent these days. You'll see someone on social media or in a gathering or on a phone call or in a Zoom meeting, right, that you really respect, and then all of a sudden they say something that you vehemently disagree with. And in my case, this may be a really great person who's super smart who turns out to be a Red Sox fan. And I just can't believe that this smart person could be so far off when it comes to the way they feel about sports, right? I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek because I know who my audience is. Um, the, other, the other example I can give you is in politics. You may really like somebody and think they're really smart and you may have done work with them and they did something really great and they got great results for a mutual client that you have and you find out that politically your beliefs are not aligned with the other person's beliefs. So what ends up happening is you, you think to yourself all of a sudden that this person isn't who you thought they were. All of a sudden you think, well, they're, they're not that good a person. How could they be a good person? They're a Red Sox fan. Or how could they be a good person? They're politically not aligned with me. Well, feelings and facts are two different things. And I want you to make sure that you can separate how you feel from what the facts are. Whenever you're looking to make a big decision, you need to look for proof. And when I say proof, I mean proof that something works. I mean proof of a concept. I mean proof that what this person is saying 
is in alignment with what the reality is, with what the facts are. It's so important that you search for evidence and that you ask people for evidence. We've all become very lazy when we make a case to someone else. We have oftentimes suspended the need for proving what we believe to be true because people make emotional decisions. They make decisions with their gut. So when you're thinking, I want you to look for proof that what people are saying is actually true. Look for evidence. There's no one that I've ever worked with who has ever been hesitant to provide proof of something if what they're saying is actually true. I get people all the time who talk to me on the phone and they're trying to decide whether or not they want to work with me and they ask me for letters of recommendation and I'll send them letters of recommendation, testimonials, references, and they call me back and they're amazed. You sent me five references. You sent me five testimonials. They're shocked. And I say to them, oh, you sent me five people that I could call to verify what you're saying. And they, you know, they're, they're shocked that I actually send them something that verifies what they're talking about. Everybody you work with should be able to provide you with proof of what they're talking about. And if they can't, you need to question the validity of what's happening. The third thing is confusing possibility versus probability. Now, when people hear probability, they think mathematics. I'm not talking necessarily about pure math. I'm talking about the way that you think and the way that you approach something. Take flying, for example. There are many people who are afraid to fly. Well, they're actually not afraid of the flying issue. They're afraid of crashing, right? If you sit down with them and you discuss this rationally, what they're doing is they're confusing the possibility of the plane going down with probability. The probability of a plane crashing is minuscule. It's so unlikely that it would ever happen on a flight that you as an individual are on that you should take comfort in the fact that you're more likely to get food poisoning from the food they serve on the plane than you are from the plane crashing into a mountain. But the, probability, the possibility of it is so strong that people are overwhelmingly concerned and because when those things do happen, they make major news. In our day-to-day -day lives, we need to look at the probability of something versus the possibility of something. And when you realize how small the probability is, it helps you make better decisions. The second mindset aspect, the second aspect of your mindset that we need to focus on today is guilt and you having no guilt, okay? We've all been raised to be good people. And one of the tools that people use when they're raising children is guilt. I was raised and am today a Catholic. And being Catholic comes with its own unique set of baggage. You were raised in either that faith or a different faith. And every faith uses guilt as a lever to get people to do what they want them to do. I need you to separate yourself for a minute from things that make you feel guilty. And I need you to ask yourself, is what I'm doing legal? Is it morally okay? Is it ethical? And if the answer to those three things is yes, you need to suspend any guilt that you feel. For example, some people say no to clients and then they feel guilty about it when they know in their gut that this is not going to be a good client for them. 
Is it legal for you to say no to the client? Absolutely. Is it moral? Sure. Is it ethical? 100%. And you said no to this client because you got a bad gut feeling, yet you still feel guilty. Why do you feel guilty? Get rid of that guilt. You don't need to make yourself feel guilty about saying no to anything that is legal, moral, and ethical. Your oath as an attorney or the oath that you take to yourself as a business owner should first be to do no harm, but to do no harm to yourself. And oftentimes we'll say yes to types of business, pieces of business, or working with specific clients who harm us mentally and psychologically. And there's no reason you should ever agree to work with someone who's going to frustrate you or aggravate you. The rule of thumb you should have is if you wake up in the morning thinking about this client and dreading seeing them, they shouldn't be your client. That's a mistake you made in onboarding them. You need to figure out how to get rid of them and not feel guilty about it because that client has no business making you feel that way. The third, we feel guilty about treating ourselves well. Those of you who have seen me speak a number of times, you've heard me talk about how when I travel, I choose to fly first class, I choose to stay in better hotels, I always take the upgrade of a, in a hotel room, especially if it is a decent hotel in a decent city, even if I have to pay for it. My contracts, when I book a contract with a client, whether it's a speaking engagement or consulting engagement, I cover my own travel costs because I'm sick of clients making me feel guilty or haggling with me over the difference in a coach class ticket versus a business class or a first class ticket. I treat myself well because I'm inconveniencing myself by having to get on a plane, go somewhere, and stay in a hotel. I treat myself well because I'm worth it. I treat myself well because if I don't, nobody else will. All of us have things that we like to indulge in to make ourselves feel good. There's no guilt associated with that. There should be no guilt associated with that. If you want to travel the world in your retirement and leave nothing for your family when you pass away, that's your right. You should absolutely feel no guilt about that whatsoever. You work, number one, to take care of yourself and to take care of the people that you care about. And no one should ever make you feel guilty about what you do with your money as long as you use it legally, morally, and ethically. No one is able to sit in judgment of you if you earn that money legally, morally, and ethically. The fourth is self-promotion is your duty. I work with a lot of people who come to me and when they go to promote themselves, when they go to market themselves, when they go to sell their services, they all of a sudden get shy. They all of a sudden decide that this is the time they feel bad about promoting themselves. You will be the best lawyer. You will be the best convention service planner, the best travel planner, the best consultant anyone's ever, the best consultant no one's ever heard of if you don't promote yourself. You've got to have the mindset that it is your duty to promote yourself. And if you don't promote yourself, that's when you should feel guilty. 
I, um, I actually tomorrow I'm doing a podcast on why no one has ever heard of you, why you don't have more clients. The reason you don't have more clients, most people I work with, the reason they don't have most client, blah, the reason they don't have more clients is because they don't promote themselves. And why don't they promote themselves? It's not because they're not good enough. It's because they feel guilty about it. We were raised to be humble. We were raised to be modest. And that is in conflict with the thought process or the theory of self-promotion. And then those of you who are lawyers, I don't know what the hell they do to you in law school, but for some reason they beat the hell out of you in law school so that you believe that you're gonna hang a shingle and people are just gonna find you. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you don't go out and tell people that you provide value and then tell them how you provide value, nobody's ever gonna know who you are and that you're available to do that. Self-promotion is your duty, and if you feel guilty about it, it's going to hinder everything else you do. It's gonna prevent you from being the best you can be and from serving the best possible clients. Five is the abundance mentality. There's plenty for everyone. If I win, you don't have to lose, and I learned this over time. I'm an extremely competitive person. Many of you are probably just like me. You're probably really, really competitive. And I would always feel like someone who does what I do, if, if, I'm, if, I, if, if they get a new client, that somehow that takes away from me. But that's not true. There's plenty of clients out there for everybody. You know, if you're a litigator, there are plenty of clients out there for you and someone else landing a case doesn't take away from your ability to land a case. Now, listen, you may be up against someone else, another law firm in town for a matter, and you know the person's shopping around and you want to win and you should do everything you can that's legal, moral and ethical for you to get that case. That's fine. But getting that case or not getting that case will not affect whether or not you get the next case. There's plenty of business out there for everyone. The world is huge and there's more money than you could ever spend in your life available to you. And someone else making money doesn't take away from your ability to make money. So this mindset shift of you getting paid for something or getting paid a premium for something has absolutely no impact on whether or not someone else succeeds or fails. So if you make a million dollars on a case, that takes away from no one else's ability to earn a living. Their ability to earn a living is on them. You need to make as much money as you can. It's your right to make as much money as you can and no one else can tell you differently. Number six, offer help, offer to help everyone and be compensated for doing it. So someone comes to you with a problem you can solve, you have every right to be compensated for solving that problem. You and I, that's what we do. We solve problems for money. We provide so much value to the other person that whatever we charge them is minuscule or negligible compared to the problem we solved for them. You know, one of the, one of the uh, real revelations I had in, in, along the lines of this specific area was in speaking to uh, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And someone raised their hand and they said, 
you know, I feel bad. Everyone's entitled to representation under the law. And I feel bad that I can't help everyone. And I said, well, everyone's entitled to representation, but everyone's not entitled to great representation. And if you want to provide for your family and you are an exceptional lawyer, your fees should be exceptional. And you don't need to have 100 clients at an exceptional fee rate. You need to have 10, and that allows you to help people in greater detail, with greater gusto than you would if you were spread so thin that you were helping 100 people. I, I can't stress this enough. You are to offer help to people who can and will pay you. If you've chosen to make it your mission to try and help people on a pro bono basis, God bless you. That's not a business. That's a charity. And if you want to do that, you, that's great. We need people to do that. If you want to be a public defender, you want to work for legal aid, that's fantastic. You can do that if you want. But if you're in this for money and you start to feel guilty about making money for providing value, you need to figure out a way to get that guilt out of there. And maybe that means taking 10% of your time and volunteering. And that's fine. But then separate that, compartmentalize that part of you and what you do from everything else. Because this is a business and businesses exist to enrich their shareholders. And you may be the only shareholder, so guess what? You have to be dedicated to enriching yourself. And you can't feel guilty about that. This is an area where a lot of people that I work with get hung up. So if you have any issues, any qualms whatsoever, we can get them out in the open. You can, you can talk about them here or we can talk about them privately. But you've got to be able to put that guilt behind you once and for all. Because if you don't, it's not going to necessarily come out overtly. It will come out subconsciously and you'll find yourself sabotaging your ability to make the money you really deserve. Guilt is the worst and it's baggage that somebody else put on you and we've got to find a way to put it down. All right, removing negativity. This is a big one. Your thoughts become reality. So if you wake up and your first thought is, oh my God, how am I going to make enough money to pay the bills? Or your first thought is, oh my God, I have to do these five things in order just to get even today with the amount of money that I need. That's going to be a problem. Your negative thoughts will become reality for you. If you continue to think about what you lack, your lacking will become your obsession. The way to reverse this is think about what you should do or where you should be. Think about your potential versus what's chasing you. Think about what's ahead of you versus thinking about what's chasing you. Negative thoughts will kill you. Focus on where you're going. Focus on what you want out of life. The more you obsess over that, the more likely you are to achieve it. You've got to eliminate negative reinforcement. If there are people who are around you who are constantly negative, you've got to get rid of them. And when I mean negative reinforcement, I'm talking about social media too. If you go on social media and you see people constantly pounding the negativity, you got to get rid of that. That is the worst thing for you. If you start surrounding yourself with people who are positive, who are achieving results, 
you will find that your whole attitude changes. There's, uh, there's a, a, a great self-help saying that uh, you are the sum of the five people or the 10 people that you spend the most time with. You know why that's true? Because you're the sum of their attitudes and their behavior. So if you're surrounded by successful, positive people, if you're the least successful person in your group, you're going to raise your game. You're going to elevate your level of success so that you are up to par with them. If you're the most successful person in your group, you're constantly going to be dragged back to the level that those other people are at. You need to be surrounded by, whether it's real, in real life, or virtually, you need to be surrounded by positive people. And that positivity will reinforce who you are. Once you get rid of the negative people in your life, you will notice a difference in your thoughts, in your feelings, and in your behavior. Now, I get this question a lot. Dave, what if the negative person is a part of my family? Well, the best thing you can do is disconnect from them. So see them once or twice a year. I mean, the best thing that ever happened to you, if you got negative people in your family and they're not in your house, the best thing that ever happened to you was quarantine, lockdown, right? Oh, I'm afraid to leave the house because of coronavirus. Can't see you. Perfect. Get rid of the negative people in your life. The minute you get rid of the negative people in your life, it's like a weight has been lifted. Model positive thinking. Every situation has a positive upside to it. The situation that we're in right now, by all accounts, is not great. But what's the positive thing that can come out of this? Well, you're converting your business model into one where you don't have to travel that much. You're converting your business model into a virtual model where you can see 20 clients a day from the privacy of your own home. When this is over, that's not going to go away. You may still need to see one or two people a week in person, but now you can do even more business virtually. There's even a positive upside to the situation we're in today. If you look for the positive, and it's a legitimate positive, and you believe it, and you find it in every situation, you will feel much better about yourself. Now, I'm not saying that you don't get pissed off. I'm not saying that crappy things aren't going to happen to you. That's not the case at all. You know, you get a flat tire on the side of a highway when you're dressed in a suit and you have some place to be. That's a shitty situation, and there's nothing we can do about that. So I'm not telling you that positive thinking is going to fix that tire. The only thing that's going to fix that tire is you rolling up your sleeve, jacking up the car and putting the spare on there, or you waiting like an hour and a half for AAA to come. I'm talking about day-to-day -day life, focusing on the upside of the things that you have versus the downside of always being negative. The fifth is what one person can do, another can do. If you want to achieve something, and somebody else out there has achieved it, you can do it too. Looking at the people who are online with me now, there's not a dummy among any of you. There's not one person among all of you who, ha who doesn't have the capability that everybody else has. If you look around and you think to yourself, well, if that person can do it, I can do it, you certainly can. All of you are intelligent, capable individuals. Those of you who think for, for one moment that you can't do something, I guarantee you there is someone out there who has a tenth of your intelligence who is achieving what you want to achieve. If they can do it, you can do it, and you always have to keep that in mind. Getting paid first. All right, this is something that my clients love, but they're afraid to do it until they do it, and then once they do it, they can't go back to the other way. Everybody, 
everybody has the ability to get paid in advance, no matter what. It's just a matter of how you present yourself and your services and the value you provide and positioning the way you do business. Many of you have heard me tell the stories of how I worked with IBM and how I worked with Pfizer and they always paid net 60, net 90, in IBM's case, like net 120. And my team at Gallup, when I worked with IBM, would only get paid when the cash came in. And they would get paid based on the work in progress. So if we had a million dollar engagement, we got paid a million dollars. If a third of the work was done in the first month, they got paid a third of the compensation that they would get on that engagement. So if we didn't get paid in advance, we would be doing the work waiting to get compensated. So our fee was always paid in advance so that we knew once the work in progress was done and signed off on, we were gonna get paid. It's very much like getting a retainer in the practice of law. So when I went into Pfizer and to IBM, notorious companies for paying net 60, net 90, IBM net 120, knowing that IBM had this practice in place, I had a father, my dad, who worked for IBM for 41 years. My mother worked for IBM for 18 years. When I went in to pitch IBM, I knew that they had this practice. So when we got down to the final decision between us and the other company that we were going up against to get this engagement, I made it clear that our terms would be that we would need to get paid up front or we should not do the pitch. They agreed. We got the deal. And when we got the deal, I made sure that we put in the contract that we would get paid up front. The contract came back and it said, no, we don't pay up front. We pay net 90, which meant net 120. I had to go to the CFO and I had to explain to the CFO, these were the terms. And do you know that we got a check to get paid up front? Now, for me, that has been my business practice from the very early days. Why? Ever since I ran hotels, because I realized that accounts receivable cost money to be collected and most of the time when you had outstanding accounts receivable you would take a discount to get that money in the door and I didn't like discounting my fees after the service was provided so I get paid first number one to increase compliance when clients pay me first they do what they say they're gonna do they show up to the meetings they actually do the work they do their job in our relationship because they paid in advance. So if you want to increase compliance in your business, get paid first. Number two, you reverse the risk, right? My clients pay me. If I get hit by a bus, the insurance company will pay them. I have insurance for that. But if the client owes me money and they get hit by a bus, I'm probably not going to get paid. We've reversed the risk. You should too. Number three, there's less cost. Collections cost money, whether you give a discount to get the money in the door or you got to hire somebody to pester the crap out of people. Collections cost money. I don't want to spend any money on collections. There's less labor involved. If you get paid up front, you need less labor. You don't need that person to collect. You don't need an accounts receivable department if you're a big business. Finally, you got no worries. If the money's in your bank account, you're not worried if the money's going to come in. You know, this coronavirus situation really crystallized everything. I had a number of speaking engagements scheduled for the summer and the fall. People who had booked me because they all paid in advance and because my contract is that I don't refund that money, I will reschedule. 
I have that money in my bank account. And that has gotten me through this period of time. There were other engagements that hadn't been booked yet. Guess what? They're not going to be booked. So there's less worries when you get paid in advance. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, well, Dave, my competition, they don't get paid in advance, so I'm putting myself at a disadvantage. Not true. You, if you do your marketing correctly, if you position yourself well, you are in a category of one, and you then do not have adequate competition. There's somebody who can do the job, not as well as you, but they can do the job. Then it becomes up to the client whether they want to pay you in advance and get the best or pay the other person and take their chances. That's the way you have to position yourself. So from a mindset standpoint, you have to be worthy of getting paid in advance. Now, who's not worthy of getting paid in advance? Someone who's not confident in their services. I know all of you very well. I know that you're capable of providing outstanding service. You deserve to be paid in advance. So make it happen. Guard your time. Before you sit down with anyone on a, on a Zoom call, you know, on a webinar, on a Microsoft Teams meeting, on the phone, in person, you need to ask yourself, why should I invest in you? So if somebody comes to you and they say that they want to be your client, your first thought is, why should I invest in you? Now you're thinking to yourself, well, the client's going to invest in me. I'm not investing in them. No, you're investing your time before they hire you. So why should I invest in you? And that makes you force yourself to ask, is this person a serious potential client? If they're not a serious potential client, then you shouldn't invest your time in them. So asking yourself, why should I invest in you, is the, comp is the equal, it's comparable to you deciding whether or not you want to invest money in them. Investing time, investing money is the same thing. In fact, I would contend that investing your time is even more important that you make sure you do it right than investing your money. Why? You can't get time back. You can make more money. I can make another dollar anytime I want. I can't make another minute. I can't make another hour. So before you spend any time with someone, ask, why should I invest in you? Second, why now? Does this meeting have to be now? If the answer is yes, why? What's the urgency behind it? Can you send me something to review first? You will save yourself so many absolutely infuriating meetings by asking to see something in advance, like an agenda, right? Tell me what you want to talk about. Send it to me first so that I know what we're talking about if I don't think it's worthwhile, I'm not going to take the meeting. Maybe we can do this in an email exchange, or maybe I shouldn't be involved in this at all. You have to be as guarded with your time, even more so than you are with your money. You wouldn't let someone run into your house, run right upstairs to your dresser, take your wallet, grab all the money out of your wallet, and then run out of the house. That would never happen. The minute they got in the front door, you'd be whacking them with a baseball bat. Or even worse, here in Florida, you know, a lot of people in Florida, that they wouldn't even make it to the front door, right? So your thoughts about time need to be the same as your thoughts about guarding your home, about guarding your money. Don't give it away. It's far more valuable. The final point I'll make, don't answer an unknown call. 
The worst thing you can ever do is pick up a phone when you're unprepared. I have always had a theory that we don't answer a phone call if we're not prepared to have a deep discussion, especially if it's a client. These days we all have call waiting. I see your ID when you call me. If I'm at my desk and I have time available, I'll take your call because I know I can sit down, look at my notes, see what we talked about last time, connect with you on a level where I can give you the attention and the advice that you really deserve. If the call is unknown, you can't do that. And so many times I see professionals answering the phone in their car and they're driving, they're distracted, they don't have the file with them, the client's asking them questions, they're trying to answer, they don't remember what they talked about, they can't capture the time. All of these are bad things. It's far better to let the phone go to voicemail. If the person doesn't have an appointment scheduled, email them, schedule an appointment, sit down and answer them. If it's really urgent, then call them back when you're in a better place and you have access to the files. Finally, never trust anyone who is late. This is a big deal, and people from Miami hate me for saying this, but it's the truth. Someone who's late does not respect your time, and if they don't respect your time, they don't have any respect for you. I hate people who are late. Now look, stuff happens. Sometimes there's traffic, and even if you allow 45 minutes to an hour for travel, things happen. These days, we're not traveling anywhere. So if we've got a 1 o'clock meeting and you don't show up for the 1 o'clock Zoom meeting, you show up at 1.15, I ain't going to be there. You know why? Because at 1 o'clock, I was at my desk in front of my camera waiting for you. So I can't trust you if you can't keep that commitment. If you can't keep the commitment of my time, you're not going to keep the commitment of my money. I tell you, this is one of the hard and fast rules that I have. I give people one mulligan, and if they're late after that, it's over. I don't reschedule. I don't chase people down. You know, people say to me, Dave, what if it's a potential client? What kind of a client is that person going to be? We're already starting off where they don't trust you or where you don't trust them because they showed up late, where they don't respect you because they couldn't be there on time. I mean, these days, it's a Zoom call. You got a phone, you hold up the phone and you go, here I am. It's going to be five minutes before I get to my office, but I didn't want to be late. I wanted to make sure I respected your time. Don't trust people who are late. They do not respect you. Follow your passion. If it's not fun, you're done. Listen, there's all kinds of stuff that we do each day that we don't want to do, right? I just brought before this meeting, I brought the garbage cans in. You know, it's raining outside now. Did I want to go out there and drag the garbage cans in? No. But my kids, who usually do it, were upstairs on school stuff. So somebody had to bring in the garbage cans before they filled up with water. I did it. Not fun, but it's my responsibility. There's always going to be something that's not fun, okay? However, if you wake up every day dreading what you're doing, you got to find something else to do. I don't care how long you've been doing what you're doing. If it's not fun, you're done. If you don't get to do what you do best at least 75 to 80% of the time, if you don't enjoy what you do at least 75 to 80% of the time, you got to move on. You, I, I can't stress this enough, you're not going to be passionate. It's not going to be fun for you to go out and get clients. It's not going to be fun for you to jump into new stuff you're going to kill yourself. You're literally going to take years off of your life doing something you don't want to do. 
if you're not enjoying what you're doing, if you're not passionate about it, you'll never be able to get into flow. This is the state of optimal productivity. Last night, I ended up working all night. You guys got an email from me this morning, probably at like four in the morning. And I, I went to bed at like 4.30, five o'clock this morning. I just lost track of time. After, after I put my kids to bed at like 9.30 last night, I sat down to do some work. I edited some videos, I wrote some copy, I prepared some of the presentations that I have to do in the next few weeks. The next thing I knew, I had it on my list of things to do to send you guys the email last night. It was like 4.30 in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. I hadn't sent the email out yet. I sent the email out and I knew I had to get some sleep, so I went to bed. I didn't even care. The time passed by like that because I really love what I do and I was in the optimal state of productivity. People are always saying to me, you work too much. It's, you know, uh, don't, you, don't you hate the fact that you have an office at home, that you have a studio at home because you're always, you always feel like you're working? No, I love it because I love what I do. Of course I want a studio in my house. Of course I want an office in my house because it gives me more time to do what I want to do. I love my family and I love spending time with my family and I'm you know, a rational human being, I can separate family time from work time. But when you love what you do, the days and the hours pass by as if it's nothing. I want that for everyone. I want everyone to have that same opportunity. You can have that opportunity if you're doing something you're passionate about. This passion is contagious and it creates better clients. When your clients are around you and you're fired up, they get fired up too. They get excited. They're happy. Now listen, I'm not saying that a client who comes to you because they're going to file for bankruptcy protection is going to leave there going, yes, I'm not going to pay my creditors. Or maybe some of them do. But, you know, the passion that you have makes people feel better. And that's what the important thing is. When they interact with you, they're happy because they know they've got the right person. They're excited because they know they're with someone who takes their stuff as seriously as they do. That's contagious. It's the best possible thing in the world when it comes to work. If you've ever met somebody who's really into what they do and you work with them, it's like you've found the perfect person to solve your problem or the perfect person to connect with. Don't you want your clients to feel that about you? Well, if you're passionate about what you do, that will come through. Everyone in your organization must have this passion. So those of you who hire employees, whether it's a receptionist or a paralegal, You've got to have people who are passionate. They're, they either got to be passionate about the client, passionate about the work, or passionate about both. But if they don't have the passion, they're screwing up everything. Never hire a competent employee who doesn't have a passion for what their core responsibility is. If you do, that person will drag your entire organization down. The final point. If you're not passionate about what you do, you've got to find a way to create value in an area where you do have passion. I've worked with a lot of people over the years, and this is particularly true of lawyers who come to me because they went to law school because they didn't know what to do when they graduated from college and they just fell into the practice of law. When I give them permission to do something else, it's like a weight has been lifted off of their shoulders. I want to give you this gift. If what you're doing is not right for you, let me help you figure out what is right for you. Because once you do something that you're passionate about, 
your whole life changes. Ignore your critics. Critics aren't your client. You got to follow the money. If somebody who pays you is unhappy with something you do, you got to figure out what you did wrong and you got to fix it. Otherwise, don't listen to them unless you value their opinion. So, for example, if you asked me for a critique of something, I would give you a legitimate critique. But I'm not going to give you a critique unless you ask me, right? Unsolicited feedback, unsolicited advice is worthless. Why? Because it's for the sender. People who say, listen, I just want to share something with you. That advice is useless. And I get this a lot when I do presentations in front of people. No matter how often or how much I proof a presentation, no matter whether I have somebody else look at the presentation, somehow there's at least one typo. There's often many typos incorporated into my presentations. I try not to make typos. I have people go through the presentations and edit them. Somehow stuff gets incorporated in there. I've written books and they've gone through copy editing, two levels of editing that have still contained typos. And there are people who have an eye for this that are going to find it. You know what? I can't let that weigh me down because that unsolicited advice, hey, there's a typo in there. I'll fix the typo if they point it out and I'll appreciate them helping me, you know, help keep me from looking foolish. But when somebody comes up to me and they say, I could never hire you because you made a typo in those slides, my response is, well, I'm glad you told me that because now I need to cross you off my list because I don't want you as a client. Because if something as stupid as a typo is going to keep you from hiring me, you got the wrong guy because I'm not the detail guy. I'm the big idea guy. Unsolicited advice is worthless. If you ask for advice, take the critique seriously. If you don't ask for it, don't worry about it. You got to ask yourself, if somebody gives you some advice, does it help? Does it create more value? Or are they doing it just to take a shot at you? Sometimes even when you ask someone for advice, they're giving it to you because of their own baggage. So does it help? Does it create more value? Okay, if it does, incorporate it. If it doesn't, thank them for their advice and move on. People who take shots at you. All right. And, you know, on social media, these people are the haters, right? They're out there and no matter what you do, they hate you. Uh, there's there's somebody out there. I don't know who it is. Every time I post a new video on YouTube, they give me a thumbs down. It could be the best video in the world. It cre could create value for thousands and thousands of people. I get a thumbs down. You know what I do? I just wear them down with my success. My success is going to grind away at them until eventually they give up. I have people who post negative comments and give me negative uh, feedback on Twitter when I post stuff. And you know what? I'm going to wear them down with my success. And there is nothing I love more than just driving somebody away with my success. You got to have thick skin. The best revenge is living well. And there was never a truer statement. People who take shots at you are not worth your time. Anytime somebody takes a shot at you, you got to think to yourself, you know what? The next time I buy a new car, the next time I go on a nice vacation, the next time I invest in something that my family and I are really going to enjoy, that is how I'm going to extract my revenge on somebody who's a complete moron and wants to take a shot at me. Can't let it bring you down. You absolutely cannot. I've had some of the worst things you can imagine said about me. You just got to move on. It's about them. It's not about you. Taking on fear. You know, the acronym for fear that I love, I didn't invent it, but I use it all the time, is false evidence appearing real, right? 
you got to be able to aggressively attack the thinking that's behind the fear. Um, there's, there are rational fears and there are irrational fears. And we talked about possibility versus probability earlier on. You have to ask yourself, what's the real risk here? Is there a real risk of doing this activity? Is there a real risk involved in this? And if there is a risk, how do I mitigate it? How do I take every action possible to make sure that the risk is not something that is going to have an impact on me? I want you to use rational thinking to combat irrational fear. And what that means is, is this action necessary to truly prevent this risk? Is the fear rational? Is it likely? Many of you who've known me for years know that I have, I had, uh, and it's still there to a certain extent, a crazy fear of heights, really a truly irrational fear of being in high places. And this fear would manifest itself when I would be in an area with a wide open stairwell or escalator, like in a mall setting or a stadium. So I decided when I was in my 30s that I was gonna do something about it. I lived on the east side of Manhattan and there was a wide open stairwell by the, by the East River. On one side was the East River, on the other side was the FDR, which is, a, which is a highway and it's a very narrow highway. So you walk up these stairs, which are probably 150 feet in the air. There's like three landings and they're all concrete and it's out in the open and they're not very well cared for. So there's all kinds of crap on them. And, you know, it gets windy. You go up those stairs to an overpass that goes over the FDR drive and then down the other side. And I said to myself, I need to get rid of this fear so that I can go up those stairs, walk over that highway and down the other side. And, you know, to me, overcoming this fear would impact my life in a number of ways. I never got on an escalator in a stadium that was higher than like 100 feet because, if it was open on both sides, I would freak out. I couldn't go to malls and ride the escalators that are you know, multiple levels because I would feel like I had this sense like I was gonna fall. So I went to a therapist who practiced cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's basically somebody who takes you and forces you to confront your worst fear and basically stands there with you while you do it. That's what cognitive behavioral therapy is. There's not a lot of talking going on. It's you and the guy or the woman that you're, is your therapist going into a place and them going, all right, what are you afraid of? Let's go. That's basically it in a nutshell. There's more to it than that. There's some psychology involved, but that's the crux of it. And within 10 days, I had overcome this fear. And now I can pretty much do these things. Sometimes I feel some discomfort and I know how to adjust my thought process, but that's what it is. Overcoming a fear, especially an irrational fear, like an irrational fear of heights, I'm not gonna fall off that stairwell as long as I put one foot in front of the other and walk up the steps. But overcoming that fear just involved changing my thought process. Realizing that was incredibly liberating to me. I can now do that, and anytime I feel discomfort, I change my thought process, and I push myself a little bit more, and I can get through that because of the techniques that this person taught me about shifting my thoughts. Is this a rational fear? Is my hesitancy necessary in order for my own survival? Is it likely that I'm gonna fall off of that stairwell and plummet to my death in the East River or on the FDR Drive? No. Has anyone plummeted to their death off of those stairs? Well, not in the recent past. I haven't read about anybody doing it in the news. Maybe somebody who jumped at some point. So push yourself to do it because if somebody else can do it, you can do it too. You've got to confront 
any of these fears. And sometimes these fears manifest themselves in work, like the fear of public speaking, like the fear of making a call and asking someone to do business with you. Those fears are not rational. The worst thing that can happen is someone will say no. Are you going to be embarrassed? It's you and the other person on the other end of the phone. They're going to forget that conversation in 10 minutes if they say no. You're the only person that it's going to stick with, and you can get it out of your head like that. That's an irrational fear. You've got to take your mindset and shift it and get through it. Systems fix a bad memory. So when it comes to client attraction, if you have a system for attracting clients, some of the things that we've talked about are client attraction systems, you will help yourself get new business. Systems for communication, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Weekly emails, monthly newsletters, even if you wanted to reach out to people on a daily basis with videos and podcasts, that system helps you keep from remembering that you have to do things to help move your business forward. Workflow systems, all of you who do client work have some kind of a system. It may be a crappy system that you need to fix, but you got a system in place. It helps you get through the workflow. Compliance systems. We have to have systems in place to keep our books, to pay our taxes, to pay our payroll taxes, to be in compliance. Systems fix a bad memory. Don't rely on memory. Lists are a good secondary way to remember things. Put systems in place to address issues that you have in your business so that you never have to worry about them. Here's the final mindset. It's ask. You don't get what you don't ask for. So if you want someone to work with you, you got to ask them to invest in your services. Tell them the value you provide and then ask them for the money. You have to ask. If you want someone to sit down with you and connect with you, you got to ask them for their time. Sometimes we don't feel good about doing this. You've got to get past it. You have to ask for clarity in situations that are ambiguous. So often I find that people are afraid or they're too proud to ask for clarity. They think they should, have, they should know what the person is talking about. I've got a 21-year-old and a 25-year-old niece. It's like they speak a different language. Every time we talk, I got to ask them for clarity. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? TikTok, what is TikTok? I have no idea what that is. Show me, tell me, ask for clarity, or you may be speaking a different language. Ask for help. Pride kills more people than not wearing a seatbelt than any other issue I can think of. If you don't ask for help, you don't get to take advantage of the best things in life. When you need help, ask for help. It makes people feel good to help other people. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people out there right now who want to help you. All you have to do is ask. In this presentation right now, there are at least nine other people, well, probably 10, including me, who want to help, help you. All you need to do is ask. If you don't know something, we can clarify it. If you're confused about something, we can fix it. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength. I can't wait to see you and hear you and be with you tomorrow on the next episode of the Do This Sell More show. Until then, stay healthy, stay well, and stay strong. Stay strong.